You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. I'm Aria Cohenway. You're watching Culturally Determined. And my guest today is Christian Lorenzen. Uh, Christian, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Christian Lorenzen. I'm a freelance writer and critic. Um, I write a lot for Book Forum, the London Review of Books, Harper's Magazine, and a few other places from time to time. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on today. So we're going to start off talking about an essay of yours that recently ran in Book Forum. I really liked it a lot, and it made me uh, think about a lot of things, so I want to talk to you about it. And so that essay... Title is like Rain on Your Wedding Day, uh, Between the Sentimental, the Gothic, and the Ironic. Uh, we'll include the link below on the blog site. I'll, I'll just read the opening few sentences. Uh, what is the appropriate narrative mode to capture the last few years of U.S. history? What mode will fit the times going forward? Political errors lend salience to certain sorts of stories. We have just lived through a gothic phase of history, and a new sentimental age is upon us. And I thought that, yeah, that really just struck me immediately as like something I hadn't thought, thought of I hadn't thought of our recent history in these terms, but it really does make a lot of sense. So can you talk more about how you came to this conclusion and why, why it makes sense? Well, you know, I, I don't think you and I are alone in thinking that the last, say, like five or six years of American history and politics have been nuts. Right. You know, um, it does not like it certainly hasn't been boring unless you let them, although sometimes I do find the re repetition of the nuttiness somewhat boring. But if we say, roll it back like 30 years, right? And to say to 1992, right? So Bush versus Clinton, Elder Bush versus Clinton. To peg those political figures, you have on the one hand, like, wasp establishment figure for a couple of years he was um the head of the cia he uh was the son of a connecticut senator himself even though he was running from texas he'd been to yale and exeter or andover or wherever very familiar figure uh clinton on the other hand while he might have been novel was a baby boomer yuppie, basically, and a um, and like the biggest smear that might have been put on him at the time was that he was kind of a, a libertine hippie, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least came out of that generation, right? He was, I think, you know, he worked on the McGovern campaign in 1972, and of course, he had the whole he played the saxophone, and there was all these like, um, uh, you know, he had a lurid, sleazy sex life, right? Whatever. Um, now, you know, and eventually that grew into the vast right wing conspiracy and Monica Gate and whatever. But the '90s are also known as like an uh, an an era of irony, and in a way. Irony is a way of dealing sometimes with things being normal, right? Like, think of Seinfeld. They lead pretty normal lives 
but their ironic disposition to everything make is what makes things zany. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So fast forward to say 2016, everything has been, you know, if you're Ezra Klein, you'd say hyper polarized, but really it's not only polarized, but been shot through with these notions of like good and evil on either side. You know, Trump is saying, lock her up, drain the swamp. These images are, whether they're just, they're not beyond their being, they being rhetoric to fire up the crowd. They're like very extreme images that have basically like a mythic or like, you know, uh, a, like a non-realist genre quality when we, if we think about them in literary terms. Mm-hmm. And so, whereas, you know, Obama had been, you know, a cool customer and the, the, the sentimental investment in him was as a kind of like, on the one hand, like a very, very competent and uncorrupt technocrat. And on the other, as a kind of like charismatic healer who could usher America into a post-racial society. Mm-hmm. Right. So then. With Trump, you know, there are all these things about him that are both true, but also highly hyperbolic. And I'd say the the main elements of those would be uh, all the sexual assault claims about him turn him into like a real monster. And I'm not saying that he isn't, but it's but. Um, in fact, I think he is. I think he's a repulsive character. But it becomes, he turns into like a real vampiric ogre monster in these heightened, in this constant barrage of ideas about this. Mm-hmm. Number two would be the idea that like another nefarious vampire from the East, namely Putin, uh, not coincidentally named Vladimir, which is a very common name for vampires, uh-uh. is somehow controlling Trump from afar. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, I'm not talking about the details of Russia Gate here or whether we believe it or not, it has a mythic power mm-hmm. on people's psyches. Um, and then, you know, uh, related to the, sexual predation, the victimization of children, the kids locked in cages. That's another trope. That's another trope of that presidency that seems to me to be highly Gothic in nature. Uh, just like, you know, cages, dungeons, torture, people having their organs removed surreptitiously by government officials. You know, we heard stories like this. Some of them may be true. Some of them may be overblown. They may be distorted but they enter into the kind of our foggy notions of, of what's happening in our politics. And I think have a, have an effect psychologically on the whole country. Um, and then Mar-a-Lago itself becomes this kind of another evil castle, even though it's in sunny, you know, coastal Florida. Um, right. So against this backdrop, we have like 
you know, in marches Grandpa Joe Biden, who in his early days was real Joe College, you know, basically kind of like prom king type guy. I can't remember. I've, I've read his memoirs and stuff. I don't remember if he actually won prom king, but he has very lovely early uh, romance and marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. to if, you, if, you, if you look at, there's a photo of him as a young man, maybe he's about 20, and um, and he's a very handsome Oh, he's man. really it, handsome, yeah. Yeah, he, and yeah. It's, it's must, this photo must have been taken, you know, before 1965 or so, and he looks all American, yeah. very, I mean, very good looking he, guy. He was a hunk and just an all around, like, popular guy. He was a teetotaler and just, he was never, like, academically distinguished or, like, the absolute star of the football team, but he was kind of like, you know, nothing not to like back then Uh um and so he has this tragedy in his past where he lost his daughter and his wife then he and his sons you know get along with the help of his his brothers and sisters who helped raise um uh hunter and his older brother Uh beau then you know another magical Princess Jill comes along after Joe sees her picture on an advertisement in the Wilmington airport for a local park where to go vacation because she's a model. He recog- Before he's set up with her on a date, he recognizes her from her modeling pictures. So I, I, I didn't know that detail. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. that's something. Um, so, you know... Time goes on. He has a long career. He, he has a couple fail. You know, we, we, we know him. 1988, he fails. He has various other activities. He's basically kind of a right-wing Democratic senator. Then he's like, you know, um, Obama's, you know, what did, uh, I think, um, on Saturday Night Live, like Leslie Jones said, did an, a bit where she said, "Are you Obama's granddaddy?" or something like that. You know, he so he has a sentimental buddy attachment to Obama. He comes back, but the and runs during the pandemic, and his whole like campaign is about healing, bringing everyone back together. Um, he has a, his prodigal son, who's been off like in the like you know with a crack addiction that he welcomes back into the fold with a new wife and you know he's cleaned up and his teeth are fixed or whatever so biden represents a sentimental restoration after the horrible nightmare of the last four years in the mind of liberals meanwhile on the other side from the right-wing perspective trump is a flag-hugging avenger of the of this you know, great America that needs to be restored. And in the QAnon conspiracy, it is the liberals, which is to say, like, the Clintons, all their associates, Obama, Jeffrey Epstein, who are running an international pedophile cartel out of the basement of eateries in Washington, D.C. Or the and, basement uh, of Congress or yeah, and, holes and in the America desert in various China. places. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Basically, the concept of the piece was to begin there 
And then also, as I, I do every, every year or every other year in the summer issue of Book Forum, I try to write a thematic piece that runs through various, like, either roughly contemporary American novels and other cultural phenomena, or sometimes I'll go as far back to, I, I, you know, if we go past, like, Poe and Hawthorne and Melville, it gets, I get a little, I get a little sketchy because I'm not actually an English professor or anything. I'm just kind of like a, a roving literary critic who used to work as an editor at magazines. <laughs> um, so the concept of the piece was to run from there. Um, I, I think the distinguishing features or one of the two distinguishing features of these sentimental and Gothic narratives, which are, really just kind of like different poles of the same story, a story that involves heroes and villains. And it's a, really a matter of like, who is the main character, the villain or the hero, right? Um, these are not ironic stories and we're not living in an era when we're saturated with irony right now. I'm not saying that irony is dead. I would say that irony is something, it's like a, a, an element, an elemental force in the way humans relate to each other and certainly in our literature and in our narratives that is at any given time is going to be either more pronounced or a bigger part of the culture or not. Uh -huh. You know, and I think the 90, one, one way you might, you might suggest that the nineties were a more ironic time because this like Manichaean struggle of the cold war of us against them was now over. And, you know, without like the bomb hanging over us, we could, uh, we could afford to be both good and bad at the same time in mm -hmm. a way that was unclear. Yeah. You know? And I think, I think the, and even though irony was declared dead after by like Graydon Carter after nine 11, eventually I think, at least where I was living, like in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, like we were all hipsters and our disposition towards everything was a highly ironic one. I mean, my theory of the hipster was it was a, a way of, it was a style that allowed for like a certain amount anyway of class mixing, like working class kids, like dressing fancy and drinking martinis and trust fund kids drinking PBRs and slumming it basically. Mm hmm. Uh, and that's my sort of general theory of the hipster and youth <laughs> culture. Uh -huh. um, and, and with, and, but I would argue that irony, I, there's the passage in the piece that I quote from Joan Didion, who said that with Obama, uh, it was said that only the youth understood him. And this was a, this is a, a, a youth that begins after you and I are maybe no longer the youth. Right. <laughs> By 2008, I don't know, I was 32 years old. Right. So I in 2008, I was 25. So I, right, I so think I could still call myself the youth. Yeah. Yeah. In 2008. Right, so and, and coincidentally, yeah, because, the, the so you're on the you're millennial and I'm Gen X. Yeah, right? I'm I'm older millennial. Um, uh, geriatric yeah. millennial has been termed in recent weeks, which is, <laughs> yes. which is funny. And I actually, I actually think about it. I actually do like it. But um, yeah. OK, so. So she said. So she said that with Obama, we'd entered the, entered the irony-free zone, 
And then that generation that was coming of age around then, who were said to be the only ones who really understood Obama, they then experienced the crash. They then experienced uh, Occupy Wall Street. And then um, the first wave of BLM, right? And none of those are very ironic moments either. Um, you know, the crash is a desperate moment. The, the like, Occupy and BLM are based on straightforward rage and, and a highly just righteous rage. And... Um, then, you know, and it felt like momentum was building even on into for the left, even on into the Sanders campaign. And although Bernie has a kind of like Larry David affect, he's well, I, personally, I think he has a has a very deep and good sense of irony, which I would say in his way is also true of Obama himself as a person. Um, Trump. Like Trump's trolling style is like his his insults are not ironic. They're just fucking insults. They're crude, you know. Um, and you know Biden may have you know I'm sure he he gets irony and things, but that's not his political style. Uh -huh. um, so I guess. Then there are, I mean, there are other various, I don't know where you want to pick up from there. Right, okay, but. so, yeah, so you, you, uh, there's a lot we can, a lot of threads we can pursue here, and I, I you've, you've laid out the, the, what you were essentially thinking in the article, but I still encourage everyone to read it. Um, so, Biden as a sentimental figure, that makes total sense to me. He is a sentimental figure, like, you know, he probably gets, like, dewy-eyed, you know, what's the Pledge of Allegiance or something like that. Uh, and oh, Biden remember, is also not a boomer. Do you remember the guy, do you remember the kid during his um, convention who was the young kid from New Hampshire with a stutter? I, you know, I, I was not, I, I specifically chose not to watch a single minute of okay. either political convention, but I do remember this. Biden, like it, it somehow only came out within the past couple of years that Biden had a stutter. And yes, I do vaguely remember this, but yeah, I mean, okay. So Biden, is born it was not entirely a secret because it's all over his like 2008 campaign memoir. Okay, it's just that nobody was paying attention back then. Right. Yeah. So Biden, I the one way I thought about Biden is that he is not a boomer. He was born in 42 or 43, and war generation or silent generation. Right. So he, while he has no living memory of World War Two, he did not. You know, he did not like take to the streets in 1968 or anything like that, or what was disgusted at the people taking the streets in 1968. He was, he would have been like in law school at that point, or maybe even out of it. No, he was, he was like a young lawyer in Wilmington moving between private practice and, um, and a, a brief time as a public defender. Right. Okay. So he, yeah, he would have been like 25 or 26 in 68. Um, he also was a pool manager because he and uh, Niela had a – they lived in this house where the deal was that they would manage a private swimming club. Okay, but this is different than the uh, than the Corn Pop. That He was a lifeguard at the, at the Corn Pop pool? Well, he, he, Corn Pop was while he was a teen at public uh, – at public 
pools in Wilmington. Okay. He used that experience to get himself a house that he lived in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine being a lifeguard, it, I, I actually would recommend if, if you, re, if you want, if you want to learn some stuff about Biden, his, his campaign memoirs are pretty well written by their, the ghostwriter, like wrote a biography of the Carter family that got nominated for the NBCC award like 20 years ago. Uh-huh. I read them for a piece for the LRB last year. Okay. So I think I, I tweet about this both as a joke and joking on the square, which is that a key moment in the, in Biden's ascension was when we learned that the corn pop story was real and that it actually yeah. did basically happen as yeah. he described it. They found that corn pop, they found corn pop's obituary. They found his like yep. friends, and relatives. So the corn pop the story, story is, in the, is in that book too. Yeah. Which, which seemed when he first told it, people like, well, this guy is senile. What, what the hell is he talking about? It makes no sense. It was like, no, it actually like it happened. And, it, and that yeah. story is this sort of like fable like story of, you know, people, different people coming together and violence and, and, and threat and then reconciliation in, in the end. So, yeah. So Biden is the kind of, you know, what he represents in sort of like the literary sense is different than what we've had since 92, at least. I mean, what, well, there's so many places we go. You didn't say what you thought George H.W. Bush represented in this sort of schema. Is he? Well, no, I mean, he was, he, he's like basically the stale version of the establishment ready to collapse to which we have an ironic disposition towards because the comic and ironic are what are, are our modes that we use to deal with normalcy. Okay. So, so Reagan was sentimental. That, that makes sense to yeah. me. And then Bush was yeah. more ironic because he was sort of the, the coming from the wasp Northeast waspiness. There's an irony in that presentation and he was never able to fake Reagan being an actor. He could never, he could, he, could he have, was not he an actor sincerity. who could fake being folksy. Right. He has that, he and John Kerry are both like that. I yeah, mean, so New England wasp sure it was, money. It turned out to be true in the end, but like John Kerry, that wasn't there a story about John Kerry, like, not knowing how to use an ATM as late as 2004 or something like that. That's possible. I mean, there's a, there's a famous thing of, of HW Bush in 92, not recognizing what a, um, a supermarket Check price scanner yeah. was yeah. because he so that was, he was so disconnected from, from normal life. Um, it's funny. I, at some point in, uh, in, in an editing job, I came into contact with like a set of letters from, like of George H.W. Bush's, one of which included like some really corny, old timey, jokey sex talk between him and his wife, Barbara. Like, I think one reference was, da da da, we'll, we'll be ready to play hide the salami. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> the secret life of these, um, you know, old school wasps. Right. It's and really what, what that, when you mentioned the letters, wasn't, H.W. Bush also famous for his thank you notes. Oh yeah, that's yeah. another uh, that's another sort of thing that you know neither you can't imagine Trump or Bill Clinton writing thank you notes. Maybe they maybe they did because they're I mean, political creatures. Certain, but certainly one of the functions of that old wasp establishment elite is to project an air of authority to keep these like gothic demons at bay without seeming soft and sentimental. Right. You know? um, and I mean, yeah, he was the greatest generation is in the war. Yes, he actually, yeah, he was, yeah. you know, he was shot down. 
um, and had one I mean, injuries. With Reagan, and, I think Reagan. I think that that so Reagan the 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 if you interpret Reagan, the proper framework for understanding Reagan is authenticity because he's an actor, right? He, so his job is to project fake authenticity. Right. You know? And supposedly he got confused in his later years about things that he portrayed on screen right. and things that act, so he thought thinking he that he actually, yeah, he thought he actually did serve in World War II instead of making like propaganda films stateside. And so that's a weird, that's a mixture of sentimentality and some sort of irony. But, um, yeah. okay. So the but one way I, and I've had, uh, I've mentioned this in a couple episodes previously, one with a philosopher and I, so I understood Trump as a postmodern figure. Um, you know, he comes from the 1980s. He comes from media. He's someone who um, was a successful businessman in some way and then basically bankrupted himself through his incompetence. And then he was able to create a simulacrum of success on TV and use that to actually become the success he was pretending to be. So that all strikes me as very postmodern. That is, that is ironic. I hadn't thought about him as a gothic figure, and that was very interesting. And I wonder if, let's say the pandemic didn't happen, and we, you know, <laughs> the uh, pangolin was not eaten or the lab leak did not happen by accident or whatever, um, then, I, then the, I think the gothic part would make less sense. But we had mass yeah. death um, yeah. in the country. Came somehow from bats. Yes. So that's yes. pretty damn gothic. Also comes from the mysterious East uh, originating in China and, you know, the mask of the, of the red death was often yep. referenced, um, in the early part of the pandemic. And, but you still I had, guess what I would say is what I would say is one thing I just say as a, to caveat everything, these frameworks that we're talking about are not mutually exclusive, right? They're just like way different ways of understanding, like these figures in this time that can also work together or just highlight different things to try to make sense of them. Right. You know? Yes. That, that makes sense. These, yeah. So we're yeah. looking at it through a literary interpretive lens at real yeah. events. And so, so that, we- that postmodern, um, and, and the other big, the other big trope from the start. And I think the best piece about this was a, in N plus one by Joshua Cohen, although it's, there was, Certainly a good one in the Atlantic. I'm not sure by who is, you know, Trump as the con artist, right? Um, which is inherent in his. Which like, is what uh, he is. I mean, he's the most successful casino. con artist in human history. Yeah. And just general huckster. I mean, that was obvious from the start. But yeah, the postmodern view of Trump is kind of like almost like Max Hedron if he got old and fat. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, there's just so many. I mean, I also. Um, uh, had uh, Jason Zinneman, the who wrote a biography of David Letterman on, and we talked about, you know, Trump appeared on Letterman like dozens of times throughout oh, the yeah. 80s, and he would both be interviewed as, you know, what was going on with him, but he would do things where, like, he would, like, catch a football that's, that, like, someone was throwing over a building. Like, he, Trump was just up to be on TV, and Letterman would do wacky things with him. Really, he knew good material when he saw it. I've, I've watched some of those. Trump does... The thing about Trump is that, like... The point to me when he becomes deeply boring is when he actually starts talking about his business and just bragging. Like I went to a in 2016 in like January or February, right before the primaries, I went to New Hampshire and saw him speak in a gym in um, Portsmouth. And he just 
I was he just started going on and on about the hotel deal he was making for the post office in DC and I thought why aren't you guys walking out of this gym <laughs> and they were the crowd was getting a little bit listless mm-hmm. but then he goes and our troops and then they're like yeah um right so, so yeah he, he's such a strange figure one of the strangest people in American history um yeah. Yeah, so you can't, you, you can't exactly also. peg him down as, as any one thing, and also he seems to have a gaping hole inside of him, and yeah. and so, you know, what? there's no, like, what is the true Trump? Is, is it, like, is it the temper tantrum having child? Is it yeah. uh, just the ultimate cynic? Yeah, the con artist, the liar? It's, it's hard to pin him down. But, no real friends, staying up late, flipping the channels on TV, waiting yeah, for like, his Yeah, he's a TV, I mean, the, another previous guest I had on was James Ponowazek, who wrote a dual biography of television and Trump called Audience yeah. of One, and I think that was uh, it's both a good book and a good episode if you want to look back on it, and yeah, I mean, Trump is a TV creation, I mean, he's a tabloid at first in New York, he's a tabloid creation, but then especially with Apprentice, he was a TV creation, and absent reality television in The Apprentice, there's no way he would have continued to like, he wouldn't have been able to revive his career, or present this image as master businessman. Yeah. You know, I was having a Twitter exchange once with a, with a like pretty young times reporter who was like, I can't believe the reality game show hosts got to like, got to the top. And I was like, dude, when I was in the eighties, when I was a kid, my grandmother who passed away in 2002 at, in her eighties, born in 1918. She, you know, not college educated daughter of Albanian immigrants, wife, all her life of a truck driver, you know, got her news from the national Enquirer. Trump was just her idea of a rich person who had an, it was like Trump and Robin Leach lifestyles of the rich and famous, Mm -hmm. you know, that was, and she'd be like, when are you going to make six figures to teenage me? You know, <laughs> I was like, I don't care about money, Nana. I'm not a sellout. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, so there's some joke, some comedian came up with the idea that, you know, Trump is like a, a hobo's idea of a rich person or something like he has golden furniture yeah, and, totally, and totally. stuff. And, um, and one of the points that Panawazic made in his um, book was that Trump became especially in the nineties when he started like appearing in, as cam- in cameos, like fresh Prince of Bel-Air and yeah. you know, the uh, home alone Two, he became like the living embodiment of the idea of money. And, yeah. um, but even during that, that period, well, he was, his business was declining, but he kept up the idea that he was money deals, success, you know, winning before Charlie Sheen made winning his thing. And so that is part of the whole like postmodern stew also. I didn't, I didn't quite, it's, it's, not quite in there in the piece, except for the idea of like a big house that's corrupt, but historically Gothic stories are basically, they spring from the lower classes or even middle classes suspicion of the corrupt ruling class. Right. Mm -hmm. So to make these two interpretations, bring them together, right. The, gothic view of trump is that he is he's still wealthy his wealth is what whether it's fake or not 
he has it, but it's but it's become kind of like it's illegitimate, it's corrupt, but it, it the rage against him is from like the most potent rage against Trump to me was from like the professional classes, like from the news, the like people who had gone through the meritocratic system, who had learned how to behave like professionals, who <laughs> knew how to follow the rules and act responsibly, uh, who work at like the New Yorker and the New York Times and universities, uh-huh. right? And, and so this Trump would be the, the, the Hillary Clinton after, voter. Yeah, at, beating Hillary and even more so coming after Obama, who's like the perfect dream of the meritocracy. Right. Obama is the talent that the meritocracy is supposed to give us. Yes. Right. Well put. You know, he, he, he's a fatherless child. He's comes from nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. And he just shoots right to the top and he can, he knows how to do it. And, you know, one of the, best things about Obama's um, presidencies is that in a real way, it was very scandal free. You know, there were no real scandals, you know, in the only, the only one that they try to make up and then they pin on Hillary Clinton is Benghazi. But right. Even that is a fake scandal to my mind. And yeah. Yeah. He was uh, no, no personal. I mean, there was stuff involving real estate in Chicago. I mean, it, it's yeah. remarkable that he came up through Chicago politics and yet seemed relatively uncorrupt. Yeah. And they were never, ever to never, no one was a, ever able to pin something on him related to there's guy, Tony Resco. Here's a name you probably haven't heard, thought about in a while, who was sort of a corrupt um, Chicago wheeler dealer who like helped him buy his house or something like that. But anyway, Seem, yeah, uh, there's a, I mean, in personal style, Jeremiah he was... Wright and Bill Ayers, right? Right. But that's like, those are slurs upon, like, one is racist, like the Jeremiah Wright Association. It's like basically trying to conjure, um, you know, trying to associate him with an out-of-context clip of an angry black man. Uh-huh. And then the Bill Ayers... Weatherman thing is a, just a smear against the left itself. And, this, and the sixties, trying to bring the the, 60s, the yeah. excesses of the sixties. And his connection far left. to Bill Ayers pretty tenuous. To yeah, and, but what's also interesting about Obama is that he was able to like uh, cut people off who he did have some relationship with before in a very clinical way. And yeah. famously, he was accused of throwing his grandmother under the, under the bus uh, in two thousand eight <laughs> when he delivered his his race speech. But um. You know, and, and in that in that speech, the whole thing was like, I can no more disown Jeremiah Wright than I can uh, disown my own grandmother. And people, and everyone was like, "This is the greatest thing ever." And then, like, more clips of Wright came out, or Wright said something nasty, and then Obama was like, "Okay, I disown him," and he still made it work because he just seemed like this. Of course, we were coming off of the disasters of the Bush administration, but he basically seemed like an all right guy, very you know, cerebral, intelligent, cool and collected, etc. Yeah. Okay, but and I, again, in the in the mind, of, again, as with QAnon, in the mind of the Tea Party. I I went to the Tampa Republican Convention for the LRB in uh, 2012, and I spent a lot of time with, like, basically political tourists, some people who weren't even in the building. You know, I would just kind of, like, hang around talking to Republicans because, uh-huh. like, Pauline Kale, I don't talk to many of them in my normal life. Uh-huh. And there was just this one lady who's like, do you hate Obamacare? And I was like, yeah, I think Obamacare is a failure because I believe in 
a real safety net. Like I was living in Britain. We had, you know, the NHS. Uh -huh. So Ob Obamacare was a disappointment to me. So I kind of like winked to myself and said, yeah, I think Obamacare is a failure. And she's like, and I think Obama is a Muslim. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't think that's true. Okay. So that's, so that's, so the Gothic, so that's a Gothic urge that there's a hidden, there's a hidden dark truth, like within this guy. Yeah. And there are always people on the right and far right were always, I mean, the birtherism, it's like where, where exactly. they tried to be like, where is this guy actually birtherism from? Birtherism was also a Gothic trope. Yes. Yeah. The, I mean, the per, sort of like purloined letter or, you know, like, yeah. like fake birth certificate. So, but that, I mean, it, it was powerful in that it, Wrote, gave Trump this political platform, and that because Fox News indulged him and so forth. But you know, it, also it, it never really stuck. Emails have become a gothic secret too. Or the server in the basement. I mean, that's yeah, the, tell yeah. the telltale heart kind of thing. Okay, but yeah. So uh, the, we might even think of that as the postmodern gothic, right? Get the electric. Yes. Yeah. That's not bad. Okay, but but so you, you okay? So there's a lot <laughs> again. A lot of places we can go. So the um, <laughs> you know, the gothic and the sentimental are sort of two sides of the same coin and i want to just briefly touch on trump like trump's sentimentalism and so make america great again is a sentimental idea yeah you know we're trying to it's a nostalgic reactionary idea yeah, yeah it's nostalgia and i've said this before on the show what did what did trump mean by that what when was america great that he wanted to return to and it was but it's the 50s but it's a sitcom 50s it's, it's like father yeah, knows best he's his tv 50s, yeah he, so it's a fake he wants to return to you know yeah, Father Knows Best. Where and... Jim Crow is happening, but you don't see it on your television screen. <laughs> right. He, yeah. So he he wants to he wanted to bring America back to some hazy fantasy version of itself. Or, or 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 if you were to give, I don't believe this, but if you were to give Trump the benefit of the doubt, he might say, he might say something like, "I want to bring fifties back for the blacks too, but they can <laughs> they can have they they can have leave it to be there for themselves." What have the Democrats <laughs> given them? Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah to give, him, his... to give him the biggest. Did you did did you uh, catch that uh, Republican failed congressional candidate from Baltimore, Kim Klasik? A, bl she a sort black of woman. She yeah. She had these. I only knew her from her ads because they went around. It was like her in heels walking the streets of Baltimore and just saying like interviewing people who said, yeah, we want more cops and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But she sort of represents that strain of, of African-American Trump ally. Right. Know. There weren't uh, that many of them and, and they all no. seem to have like, you know, Fox news contracts or running for Congress or something. Yeah. There's also this whole level of sort of sub grifters who were flowing in uh, Trump's wake. But yeah, I think so then, and then the, the QAnon narrative of saving the children um, yeah. you know, it doesn't get more sentimental than, than saving the children. And so, so, you know, save yeah, the, I mean, save the children. Has like, it has like a, it's like a, it's like a metastasis of like, you know, the runaway kids on the sides of milk cartons, all those stories from like 15 or 20 years ago of like lost girls in Utah. I mean, it's a deep gothic trope in, Amer in like twin think about twin peaks you know the beautiful dead girl in the woods uh -huh. i mean it's something that's just and twin peaks would be an example of the ironized gothic um just because that's what lynch's sensibility really is uh -huh. in a very complicated and to my mind very fascinating way 
Right. That, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I, so just getting back to Obama for, for a minute, I mean, Obama in 2008 was running on, we could classify him as sentimental, and there's nothing more sentimental than hope, I suppose. Oh, and, yeah. and, and hope and change were his uh, messages. And then, but Obama the man is more of a ironic, cynical, detached person, it turns out. Yeah. And he was able, you know, he is not, he was not hopey, changey, lovey-dovey. Um, maybe he had some naivete about how the GOP would respond to him, but he was, yeah, and, you know, bringing Biden in, this figure from an older generation, a white man, someone who was sort of a backslapping, you know, ward healer type, where Obama yeah. famously, like, hated the, um, you know, having... He would never have Mitch McConnell over for, for drinks yeah. kind of thing. And, and the D.C. press lambasted him past that. I mean, aside from the fact that Biden doesn't drink, you know, the, the former politics that Biden um, embodied for a long time was sort of like, yeah, come on, we'll just all we'll get in a room and we'll like settle this and then we'll shake hands and, you know, move on to the next it, day kind of thing. There's a lot of actually he made like his first deals in the Senate sauna with like <laughs> Jesse Helms uh -huh. and Daniel Gray. That's that's in the memoir. That's another good detail from the memoir. So so thinking back to like so the 2008 campaign was very sentimental and Joan Didion didn't like it not not surprisingly. Um, yeah. But then you know as what actually happened and the slow economic recovery and the Tea Party and all these things made it more of a you know it turns out irony is never actually dead. Basically, like Braden Carter was no, wrong. I, I I don't think that irony is ever dead. And I think that um, even, you know, a lot of, well, to, to bring it over to the literary side, uh, just for a second, a, a lot of my sort of complaint is that a lot of the big books that we see these days, and two that I cited were City on Fire and uh, A Little Life, are very irony-free gothic narratives. But on the other hand, big book that won the Pulitzer a few years ago um, called The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen is one of the most ironic books of the past decade because its narrator is kind of, he sort of resembles the also highly ironic narrator of uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. He's constantly in, he's like a spy and a double agent and uh, often, often called on to inhabit two roles at once, to be a loyalist and a traitor. Uh -huh. um, and these are historical thrillers set in the recent, you know, Vietnam and post-Vietnam era. He, there's a sequel out this year called The Committed, which is also very good, and which I'm going to have a piece out soon about once I finish it in the LRB. Um, but... Uh, We're not saturated with irony in our literature right now the way we arguably were in the 90s, but it's not gone. Mm -hmm. So some people have said I declared irony dead again, but all I'm saying is it's, it's more on the ropes. <laughs> and, and in a ways, uh, online, when it manifests itself, it's... Um, more, much more immediately disdained. Yeah, I actually, I, I, you have a line about this that I, I pulled out. Uh, so from your piece, you write, disaffection used to be cool, but irony has never been more suspect. 
online is common to see people diagnosed as, quote, irony-pilled, irony-poisoned, or sick with irony brain. You definitely see that. I mean, Twitter uh, encourages irony, and the cool kids and various Twitter groups are often very erotic. And, I mean, you know, the reigning uh, popular form, I guess there's two of them uh, over the past, like, decade or so. One would be superhero movies, and one and the other would be reality television. And reality television is both, <laughs> I mean... Off the top of my head, it's very sentimental. The Bachelor giving people roses and and happily ever after and all this stuff, but it's also very ironic because everyone knows it's fake and yep. uh, and and that secret is has been out of the bag for a long time that this is all staged. But you end up in a laughing at them kind of situation rather than a winking, knowing irony where we're all in on the joke, right? Right. I don't know. I don't. I I I think there was a certain point in not long ago when I could say that I had never watched an episode of reality television that certainly ended when I had to watch many episodes of the apprentice and celebrity apprentice during the 2016 campaign okay. just to write about Trump. Right. But, um, and I think I maybe had been at a party where we watched an episode of the Jersey shore, but <laughs> like, I am not an expert in reality. Okay. TV. Well, I actually, I've, again, I've mentioned this on the show before I watched, the apprentice with my friends in college when it was on the air in 2003 yeah. and we loved it. And yeah. it was just, especially the first season. That's when Amorosa was on the show. And it was actually, right. there wasn't that much Trump in the, in the first season. He was sort of, he was the commanding president. Yeah, I, I mean, come it, in it's and, palatable because he doesn't come on until they saves him to the end. Yeah. He would, he would, and, he would appear. He would always, he would like come down in a helicopter or something. Yeah. He would give the yeah. challenge to the teams. He would depart. Maybe he would, he would sort of like walk through one time during the episode. And then at the end he would deliver the he boardroom. Had managers and producers who kept, you know, knew how to use him. Yes. But, but, there but are anyway, stories but, from that, like the Penn and Teller guy, it's, te is it Penn or Teller who was on The Apprentice? I think lot? it was Penn because Teller doesn't speak, yeah, I think. Yeah, he had stories about Trump just like, like off camera or in parts that got cut, just like ranting in a way that's now very familiar to us, right? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I did not watch The Celebrity Apprentice ever. I, I watched, I think, the first two or three seasons of the original. But yeah, it was a super popular show the, and it was the, very entertaining. The one thing that sticks with me from watching the celebrity apprentice is like the deep, um, the deep sympathy I felt from Mary Lou Henner. <laughs> okay. Cause she has like this famous memory. She's, she's like got a, got a photographic memory or something. Okay. She's like, she reminds you of like the most diligent girl in your high school class trying to make everything work and also everyone be happy and doesn't even like to be competing against the other team wants them to win too. I like, and you know, I liked, I liked whatever sitcoms she was on, like was it evening shade or something or whatever in the eighties. And so, uh, she's the most, she emerged to me as the most sympathetic Oh, right. I, I, I did. I did remember that she had a photographic memory and like remembers what she did every single day of her life. And yeah. you can name a date, calendar date from yeah. 30 years ago. She knows it. Um, I have a pretty good memory, but I was like, wow, schooled <laughs> by Mary Lou Henner. Damn. <laughs> right. OK, I think we, we've talked a lot about this piece that it's it's a interesting idea. I hope other people I hope you continue to develop it in some way or maybe other people think about it more. I mean, that you can just I, I didn't know. I, I didn't take a lot of literary theory in college or, or anything, but you I know. didn't either. I studied classics. So I, um, this piece really comes out of a, it's my attempt to take some ideas and not even take them straight 
from this book, Love and Death in the American Novel by Leslie Fiedler that came out in like, uh, he was, was he, a, he was a new critic. Leslie Fielder? Uh, he was more of like a partisan review affiliated critic. Okay. Um, coming after the new critics. So okay. he, and he, he taught in Buffalo and Montana and hmm. his most famous essay is called come back on the raft. Now Huck honey, which posits as like the, one of the, one of the animating dynamic forces of American literature is interracial friendship between males. So then the two biggest examples are Jim and Hawk in Huckleberry Finn and then uh, Ishmael and Queequeg in Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. And there you can, you know, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. You can transfer, you can take male out of the equation in the modern era and look for you know, this dynamic, like, actually, my friend asked me the question, do you think that American literature is actually an, a literature independent from its British sources? And Fiedler's idea was what I pointed to. And it's still, I mean, you could also frame, you could frame Biden and Obama. There was a whole book, in fact. Uh, right. Someone, someone, this book, but there was a book that frame used this frame for Biden and Obama and their friendship. Yeah, yeah, that they were sort of crime fighting detectives or something yeah, along those also, lines. Also, like the Lethal Weapon movies. Like, yes, there's an endless and many variations. Yeah, and I, other uh, things. I, let's not get off on other tangents. Yeah. But I'm thinking as you're talking, you know. Um, uh, 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 Absalom, Absalom, uh, you know, Subpins Hundred, sure. and, and the the the, yeah. the 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 land that is cursed, and the generations yeah. that come after it, it, you know, fitting in with the Gothic and Mar-a-Lago, and you know, and now there's a gener new generation of Trumps who are trying to continue the legacy, and also, of course, um, uh, out Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is has, has very sentimental and very Gothic yeah. parts as well, and um, yeah, so these 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 things are very deep within. Within American literature, and I, you know, just uh, I, I need to I need to do some more reading about all this stuff. But it's it's all very interesting. Okay, but we okay. Let's move on to at least one other topic, and okay. let, let, let's do the let's do the um the boomer the uh, okay the boomer stuff. So I yeah. was idly I even I don't even remember what what prompted this, but I was idly thinking, and then I tweeted, "Who is the great American boomer novelist?" And maybe I was thinking maybe this is when the Roth bio was first coming out before the Blake Bailey uh, disaster became, uh, you know, uh, broke in yeah. the press and the, the American writers who we think as the towering figures of like post 1960s literature, um, almost, almost all of them were born in the 1930s. And that yeah. includes, uh, Roth, Toni Morrison, DeLillo, um, I can't remember if it's Pinchin, Pinchin, yes or no. Um, Cormac McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy, um, and uh, Updike, Pynchon. yeah. So, though you know, these are the people Mailer, who Mailer either, was born in the twenties. The people who either won the Nobel Prize or people thought they should win the Nobel Prize. A lot yeah. of them were born in the nineteen thirties, and that's somewhat that was striking to me. And then people were nominating various candidates, and um, a lot of the the and also also the people who came to mind as the great writers in the English language who are within the baby boomer uh, group, a lot of them are British. And so that's like, you yeah. know, Rushdie and Amos. Amos. Rushdie. Yeah. And, um, 
Julian Barnes. Yes, and so it, there does seem to be something. Kazuo Ishiguro. Yes, Nobel Prize, the recent Nobel Prize winner. And so what, yeah, what, can we think about this? What explains this? And then maybe the, you know, the great boomer creative types decided to go to Hollywood instead of writing um, fiction. And, and and so, you know, you say like Spielberg and Lucas would be the great American yeah. boomer novelist, even though they didn't write novels. And well, so, so I was batting this around online. So what, what do you think about about all this? Well, um, the first thing I would say is that the the generational divides, the way that like marketing, like I th- I think generational measurements are pretty squishy, right? Like you can be there's like take for example Brett Easton Ellis. David Foster Wallace, Jonathan Franzen, Donald Antrim. I think that technically, if you looked up the actual dates, those people are all technically very late baby boomers. But we associate all of them with either being super young in the 1980s, and certainly Brett Easton Ellis constantly calls himself Gen X on his podcast and in his last nonfiction book, White. Um, and I, he's, he's so Gen X to a T, right. much more so than he is baby boomer. Right. So, but, he, but it, within the demographic cohort, a, he may just agree that like, if we agree that like dates are not what matter so well, much as like, you know, it, so, so much as like what the vibe is. And also, it's also a matter of like when you hit, right. So the time for the baby boomer writers to hit was the like early to mid seventies up until like you know the ni- late 80s and early 90s but like, hit, that you mean, was when, like they had their first big splash or i mean yeah, was Roth, that, you know, Roth that was when they, they were young, that was when they were young right? right um and young for a writer almost basically now means well if i came out with a, a novel now i would be old because I'm 44, but <laughs> young, well, 20 under 40, 40 is the cutoff. Yeah. For being yeah, young yeah. 40 makes sense. Okay. So yeah, New Yorkers I have a few, term, I have about right? 18 months to get to publish my first novel and, and yeah. still, still make it there. Um, yeah. yeah. And so it, somewhat tongue in cheek, so, I said in the end, it might be Franzen is the great boomer novelist. He was born yeah, in 59. But, he, but, but, but vibe wise. And when he hit, he's Gen, Gen X. Okay. Right? So I think you, so you have to start the boomer give him, generation. Give, give him, and Ellis and DFW and Antrim, who I also rank. And then like even Rick Moody, those guys in the nineties, they were called the new white guys <laughs> and they were, and Colson Whitehead was thrown in with them. And George Saunders, George Saunders is, is probably older than all of them and certainly technically qualifies as a baby boomer, but he was, I think a slightly late bloomer. Right. Right. Because so, he, he was like a technical writer for in his yeah. early years. So what I would my response to what you're talking about with the, you know, first, we have the concept of greatness. Right. That implies a. A kind of sweep. B, a kind of size, whether it's like ambition or popularity and the salient literary style in the 
1970s and 1980s when these writers were young and breaking was minimalism, right? Mm -hmm. Kmart realism. So like Richard Ford, Tobias Wolf, they might be like born 1945 or 1944, but I'm going to, they, they definitely took up boomer themes. Richard Ford is probably the writer and Tobias Wolf too. If you look across the arc of his stories, they're the writers who you can, if you look across their whole career, and maybe Dennis Johnson also. That was, yeah, that was another name that yeah, came you, up. You, you can trace them from having a kind of hard scrabble slash hippie existence and, and junky existence in the case of Johnson in the, in the material that they wrote or that took place in the 1960s and 70s. Moving through, especially in Richard Ford, like prosperity, divorce, a kind of equanimity in old age until you're finally hitting retirement and just writing stories. I reviewed his last collection of stories where there's just like it could the book could have been called Memories of Kisses, you know, <laughs> um, it's it's not a it's not a bad book, you know, a couple, uh -huh. couple of really good stories in it, but. I think the last line of my piece was his realism is best when it's still dirty. Um, the dirty realists were, yeah. Is that the so, same as the Kmart realists? In, or is that a, uh, was that more of a, what were the dirty realists and the Kmart realists the same group or was that more of yeah, a class differentiation yeah. or no, like, um, that, that name, like a lot of those writers were associated with Esquire when Gordon Lish was the fiction editor mm -hmm. in the seventies. And so he's the guy who famously rewrote Raymond Carver's stories. Right. Carver was an avatar of this style, but I think he was born in 1934. Also a late starter. Right. And, uh, and so part of this is like definitional. definitional. So novelist is part I'm of it because there's the idea of the great American novel. So, yeah, minimalists you know, are never going to be called great. Two other great <laughs> two other writers who I think are great, but don't get great American writer. Three, three more who I, who are great, but don't get great American writer uh -huh. stamped on them very often because they are minimalists would be Lydia Davis, Joy Williams, and Diane Williams, not related to the last two of them. Okay. I, so, yeah. So, okay. So part of it is just how are we dividing these generations and what are we saying, you know, what it means to be great, what it means to write a novel, you know, yeah. Dennis Johnson, Jesus' son is like a linked short story collection. Right, um, and it's his best book, but he also did write a very ambitious novel called uh, Tree of Smoke. Right, I haven't read that. And so it's, another, it's, okay, there's a there's an elephant in the room and I'm going to name him. If we were having this conversation in 1997, the answer to us would be obvious and it would be Paul Oster. okay. Yes, and that name came up also uh, yeah. in, in this thread. And actually, I retweeted this just before we started taping, and someone was like, what, no one else likes Paul Oster? Um, so so he, you <laughs> yeah. know, th th he's still in contention, um, but... No, but I, I panned his last novel. I have not uh, read anything beyond the New York trilogy well, of his. You know, the New York trilogy and Leviathan which I would say when I was a young man were my, were books that I really cherished and, uh, and really kind of opened my eyes and seemed to me like the next best thing after DeLillo. 
I still think they're good, but they they are kind of like what he does is kind of ironic pastiche with cliche. Like that's his method. And it's it's writing that appeals to young people, not simply young men, because I remember my roommate um, in my first New York apartment, Semra, was also a big fan and was so excited that we were living in Paul Oster's neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> did you go, um, did you go out and re- recreate the the letters and walking around no, Manhattan or anything no, like that? No. Yeah, no. Um, Although there's a scene in Leviathan where they're at a park club party and like the fire escape collapses. So I was constantly worried about that happening. <laughs> I've stopped worrying about that because oh. I've been 20 years and no fire escape has ever collapsed underneath me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one thing I would say is that like we're trying to answer this question now, but like history has other ideas for who becomes great. One of the salient and I think great aspects of publishing today is that there's really strong um, backlist revivals going on constantly led by New York Review Classics. Uh Also, New Directions has never stopped doing that. Penguin is constantly bringing back writers who've fallen into total obscurity, often writers of color and women um, I just got a book in the other day, a, who, a writer whose stories I'd love, but whose novels I'd never read called Boston Adventure. It's by Gene Stafford. Um, so like these histories are constantly being rewritten. So my answer for two candidates for great boomer novelists, both of whom are still active and are, who are, I'm, pretty sure definitely boomers would be Gary Indiana and Percival Everett. They both happen to be ironic, highly ironic writers, which is another reason why I like them. Um, And uh, I guess Gary started in the eighties as the, he had been a playwright and a poet and he was the art critic for the village voice. And he wrote these very like acidic, art columns every week in The Voice, and it was an event. And those columns have recently been collected in a book called Vile Days. Then he started writing novels. Um, First one is autobiographical, and it's called Horse Crazy. Uh, He built up another one. I have a couple here. This is probably my favorite. It's called Do Everything in the Dark. It sort of takes characters from the East Village into their middle age when they become, as he puts it, human debris. And he was writing it, um, as he was writing this novel, 9-11 happened, and the novel ends right on the eve of Uh 9-11, of all these kind of downtown characters living in the aftermath of the 80s. Um, He also, and but to, now you could argue that those are kind of like minor coterie novels about a scene, Right, which is downtown New York, which uh-huh. can never be universalized. But he also wrote a trilogy of true crime novels, um, uh, Resentment, um, Three Month Fever, and Depraved Indifference, 
Uh, Resentment is about the Menendez brothers' trial, uh, just to give some context, that I think do constitute an engagement with, because with big American themes and stake a claim towards greatness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Um, I I never read Gary Indiana, and based on this initial thread, both of the people named him, and so I ordered um, the Menendez. he's one who I think history... Will smile upon. Okay, yeah. So uh, I mean, if first we, of all, Everett. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know recognize his name. So I got so out of it. I in his case, he's very prolific. He has usually comes out with a novel every year. Uh, he's in all kinds of genres. The last one of his books that I wrote about is called So Much Blue. It really reminded me of a kind of moody European novel by someone called by like the Italian writer Alberto Moravia. Uh-huh. Uh, it has a thriller component, but it's also just kind of a uh, meditative novel about like melancholy and adultery, but also race in America. He has a hilarious kind of send up of race in publishing called Erasure, um, a, sat- a, a dark satire on that. Um, and his reputation has been building and building um, over the past. 30 or more years. So those are two that I would throw in there. In addition to, you know, Lydia Davis mm-hmm. and uh, Joy Williams and Diane Williams. Mm-hmm. And if anybody is like older or younger than the ages that I, that we're talking about here, I'm sorry to them. For being <laughs> here. <laughs> right. I mean, the, with the baby boom, I think, you know, some of these, uh, some of these things are just like marketing spin, saying what generation is what but with the baby yeah. boom it really makes us to say things changed after the end of the war and the soldiers came back and everyone right. moved to the suburbs so that makes well, I think, and I then think you this, can, what's the end of that you could say maybe the kennedy assassination is an end although i think 64 65 are often yeah, put sure. as the the end of the the when people are born uh you know i think Franzen is 58 or 59 when he was born so he's firmly within the boomer generation and uh well, foster no, wallace but, was a, was a boomer as well um yeah but you you one way you could say it was like in a literary sense maybe they're not boomers because they didn't like when jfk was assassinated it didn't mean anything to them because they were just six right so they didn't they don't remember it you know whereas for most boomers gary indiana was born in 1950 so he you know definitely remembers it and he has a great piece about it in uh that was written it's in um going to be in his selected essays about that came out when the when Oliver Stone's JFK uh, came out and he uh-huh. wrote a cover story about it for the Village Voice. Huh, that's interesting. Um, um, so, you, but gen, the meaningful from a literary standpoint, the way in which generations are meaningful, and I think they are meaningful, is like what is your relationship to history? As, according to what stage in your life did that history happen? Mm-hmm. How mature were you? What songs were on the radio when you were a teenager? What television shows provide you a frame? Now, this only matters for the past two or three generations. What television shows give you a certain frame of reference? Right. You know, did you, you know, I think, I think a lot of millennial idealism, not to go back to Didion, can be like, like um, millennial idealism can in part be attributed to the idea that like they grew up thinking they could have a good president, 
you know, who was somebody to actually look up to, right? And to a certain extent, like, that was how I was raised to think of Ronald Reagan, even though my parents, like, were, I mean, they were just working class people who were affiliated with the Democratic Party Uh in my town. My mother thinks that my father maybe secretly voted for Reagan because Jimmy Carter deregulated the trucking industry. And my father then eventually in his old age went from being a Sanders primary voter to a Trump general election oh, voter. Wow. Uh-huh. Alas, yeah. Um, uh, so, so in that sense, talking about generations in that way is meaningful. And, you know, sometimes I think I do have more in common with, People who were born, I was born in 1976. Sometimes I think I do have more in common with people born in 1959 than with people born in 1983. That's the year I was born. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so we're having a real well, cross, right. cross-generation maybe, conversation here. Maybe then, all right, let's 1988. <laughs> well, there's that. I'm thinking of the essay that Willie Staley wrote about the good millennials and the bad oh, millennials. Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think maybe the question, the, the way I set up this question is maybe dooming it to, you know, you can't have it. I mean, there'll never be a definitive answer. Have of you, what is have the you great American novel? Have you preference of your own? Have you figured out your own answer to this question? I, I think mean, I who's... would have to answer Franzen, even though I don't think he's the best. I mean, what is the great American novel? If we actually say what, what is it? It has to be like, Moby Dick or, you know, or, um, or, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin was like a huge bestseller in his time. And maybe right. perhaps, no, I, the, you I, know, I, see, I don't. Moby Dick was like a failure in his time and it's only, it was only like revived in the 1920s by people who found it again. And so it's possible that, that there's some type of figure who was, obs- who's obscure now, 50 years from now, people, you know, look at him or her once again and, uh, and say, this was, you know, this was it. Um, even well, though I mean, we're not thinking about it so much. That a somewhat different – see, A, I've excluded Franzen from the question. <laughs> okay. But if you brought him in, his competitors I think would be like uh, Wallace and Helen DeWitt, right? Although I'm not sure about her dates. But I, I de- I've been – for the sake of argument, I've been identifying all those writers with Gen X. But yeah, right, but it's, it's, it's hard to call Franz in Gen X if he's born in 58. He's writing the ambitious novel that tries to My line about him is that he his novels since the corrections dramatize a decade's worth of reading the New York Times and listening to NPR <laughs> and put sticking that all into like one family's or two family's stories, you know? Uh-huh. Well, he has like, he has a new very much like that, he has a new know? project that is like supposed to be like a trilogy or something. Uh, I've got, I mean, I've got it right here. Oh, okay. Well, you, you, you have, um, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have access to the, uh, to the I, first. I just rearranged. I just rearranged my, uh, my but maybe, okay. Maybe we will yeah. see this as, as truly. Trust me, you open the, that book and you're right back on the friends and crack. <laughs> you know? Well, speaking of crack, uh, so what, that would be a, an amazing uh, <laughs> segue into another possible topic but actually but maybe we've you know we've gone over an hour at this point do you want to hit one more or should we or should we wrap it it's up to it's up to you i mean i i have to go back to writing when this is over (laughs) so i'm happy to avoid that (laughs) okay well i I feel like that segue is too good to lose so um you reviewed hunter biden's memoir um autobiography uh in the london review of books and 
we'll include the link, although it is paywalled. Um, uh, I grew a beard is the title they it's gave to it online. Pretty easy to get around on the LRB. <laughs> okay, um, and well, first of all, would you you know for the average uh, like American reader who has who has their interest is piqued by this book, would you recommend they read it or not? Um, I would say that. There might be two ways in which you'd be interested in Hunter in reading this much about Hunter and the ways that actually I would put it in a unified way. What interested in me in Hunter is the figure of the degenerate altar boy, having been an altar boy myself uh, when uh, I was, a, you know, a tween. Uh-huh. Um, and... Um, you know, becoming a smoker or whatever in my <laughs> old age. Uh, so in there's there are many chapters that are just like politics and quite boring and unenlightening. Uh-huh. But then his account of his own growing up is pretty interesting, um, both because it's like, you know, it's a bit like self-pitying senator's son. In a way, which I, you know, I'm not saying I felt the sympathy with him, but it's interesting to see somebody feeling sorry for himself when you know that he just had it really good. Okay, so he's it's poor little rich boy in some way, except famously Joe Biden was the least wealthy member of the Senate in 2004 or something. And his... So so Hunter had like... His mother and sister were killed. Everyone thinks I'm rich, you know, and my father's famous. Yeah. But I don't actually... I have to drink the cheap beer. You know, so (laughs) that's... Right. But then he had... Of course, there's a tragedy that is the core part of Biden Sr.'s um, biography, which is the car accident that killed... Uh, Hunter's sister and mother, and um, yeah, and and then later the brain cancer that took Bo, his older brother, who was right, who was sort trying of trying to become a more perfect version of Joe Biden, and and I think you know uh, Joe Biden's sister, uh, what's her is it Victoria, and his brother Jeff are famously like they're like his um, capos basically. Mm-hmm. You know, they like run the Biden ship with him. So mm-hmm. they, Bo and Hunter were kind of recreating that, you know, like Bo was running for office earlier. He was mostly teetotal. He was, you know, attorney general of Delaware aiming for the governorship by 2016. And Hunter was like bringing in money, you know, while also doing enough politics to make connections and stuff. Um, Joe said to Bo and Hunter, Bo is going to be president and Hunter, you are going to help him get there. That was like when they were teens or something like that. Right. I mean, it's crazy. You know, that's the sort of thing that maybe many fathers said to their, you know, pair of sons, but you know, (laughs) but in this case, my parents didn't say it to me, but I said it to them. (laughs) Then by sixth grade, I decided I want to be a writer. So that was that. (laughs) Well, okay. One of the interesting things that I didn't know beforehand is that Hunter considered going, getting an MFA from Syracuse or a joint law degree MFA. Yeah. But then I guess he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant. And so he decided he he, he just needed to go to law school. They had a shotgun wedding and, uh, and, 
he did not get his MFA, which disappointed Bo. And, you know, we, we don't have any books of uh, Hunter Biden's poetry. We don't have any novels. Instead, we have this memoir of doing tons of crap. <laughs> Right. I mean, maybe, you know, if he stays clean, I mean, maybe we will get some of the work and he will be a great Gen X novelist. He's painting. Oh, right. The painting. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, something that's strange is how much of like the history of the past few years revolves around this person, Hunter Biden, because the first Trump impeachment was related to Trump trying to dig up dirt on the Biden family, mainly through Hunter's like sinecure in this Ukrainian uh, energy company or something. And, but this Hunter as a person, he, he, he's so like, he's just sort of this fuck up. And then he's not totally a fuck up. Like he was like a, a good student did well in his LSATs managed to get into Yale law as a transfer, sending him, sending them one of the poems he wrote Right. which they politely said they really liked. You know, he was working as a banker. He was founding companies. He was making deals. He was bringing in money. He was like... Okay, so fuck, serious, okay, fuck, you're right. fuck up is not accurate. He was a serious accurate. guy with a family and a big mortgage and a functional alcoholic, you know? Right. Not, that's that's different than like... He's not a wasteful. I don't know much about him, but Roger Clinton was like a... Bill Clinton's brother was like a genuine fuck up, right? Right. Okay. And so, yeah. but if we Hunter was like a high-powered guy who also liked to party. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and sort he he's sort of been claimed by certain portions of people online as like the ultimate fuckboy or or something yeah, or like all the stuff he's been doing happened, has been cool. That only and, happened after his brother died and his wife threw him out of the house. Right, and then he had a relationship yeah. with Bo's widow. It's very it's very yeah. strange. She went to pick him up at rehab in Arizona. And that's when they got together. At a, one of the lines that was cut from my piece by my editors, perhaps wisely, although <laughs> I would have let it in, was that his book is pervaded by fraternal necrophilia. Jesus, okay, he yeah. Has, he's constantly writing letters to his dead brother. He has an affair with his dead brother's wife in part because he wants – to be his dead brother and his and his sister-in-law wants to bring Bo back and restore a, a, a an intact family with Bo's kids. Mm-hmm. When he meets his um, new wife Melissa, he's the first thing he says to her is like, "Like, I, your eyes remind me of Bo." And it's like, I mean, you know, they really loved each other, and so if you're experiencing love again, maybe that's your main frame of reference. So uh-huh. it, I, I don't find it perverse or even gothic, although it's close. That I was, that was going to be my next question. This, you know, yeah. um, necrophilia fits within the, even, yeah. you know, sort of the Freudian sense fits within the gothic and certainly his, you know, like the dissolute son. Although yeah. once, once he, once he becomes the prodigal son, then we're back in sentimental, world right. but just i mean it you could say that let's say that somehow history had changed and uh trump legitimately won the 2020 election right. the person who everyone in america would say was to blame for that was hunter biden he would become a scapegoat along the lines of anthony weiner yeah. but even worse like even worse yeah, yeah because he's 
Anthony Weiner would just happen to be there. It's like he's two degrees removed from Hillary via Huma Abedin. Yeah, Weiner right. is more of like the the fuck up who somehow managed to change history. Whereas yeah. like Hunter Biden really, you know, he sought the the job at, at Burisma yeah. or something. I mean, th- so thankfully we don't live in that alternate reality where Trump actually learned. But you know, the the right continues to obsess over Hunter. And just yesterday, like the Daily Mail printed yeah. some of Hunter's text to his lawyer, in which Hunter uses the N word, but more in the uh, least, well, you know, with, I mean, with an it's, A, it's, not it's ER. Just, just, it's the distasteful habit of a '90s guy who listens to a lot of rap and wants to be a rapper. Uh, which right. is, I'm not saying that isn't racist because it, in, in a way, it kind of is. But so it's, it's, it's like it's a, more postmodern it's a, than. Yeah, it, it's a pathology. Yeah, but but just the and so and one of the people promoting this. Uh, who I saw his his tweet appeared when I saw that you know Hunter was uh, was was trending was Don Jr.'s tweet about this and so you have these sort oh, of yeah. um, dueling I, I, sons. I, I, I can't imagine that he is Don Jr. is innocent of such sins. Who I'll will never know. I mean that mind is a real sort of lockbox. Yeah. I think, but it, it, it's just the the strangeness of it all continues and they it's like they can't find it they can't land a punch on joe and so they continue to go after hunter but really no one cares about hunter and people care about like ending the pandemic and reviving the economy and seeing their loved ones and so they continue to flail at at hunter and his various misdeeds you know over the past decade or so it's it's all very strange um i'm not even sure how much i mean obviously when the daily mail does something the right is going to puff it up but like the only right-wing media I really monitor and I kind of have mostly stopped is like I, and during the election, I would monitor like Bannon's podcast and and Tucker Carlson just because I can at least like bear to listen to them. Unlike like Laura Ingram or whatever, who's uh-huh. just it's like sandpaper. <laughs> well, you, um, you and Bob Wright, founder of Blogging Heads, uh, had that in common yeah, because he yeah. got obsessed with, t- I with the I monitor Bob podcast. Wright, too. <laughs> um, big, big fan of Bob Wright. Uh, uh, that's good to hear. He's very, he's very good, his stuff is very good on Bannon. But, um, yeah, so he became – Bob became somewhat obsessed with but Bannon. But I think, I think the right, they're all they're – all, I think the sentimental regime has, has really got them on the ropes. Like they don't have – like they need if I think and I think if Biden manages to run a convincing campaign for reelection, which is to say that, like, as an 81 or 82 year old or however old he's going to be, 83 year old, like he can run without seeming or being infirm. Which, you know, I have deep sympathy for that because I have went in my life I've had a lot of friendships with octogenarians. Uh-huh. Uh, like he may have them on the ropes. I, if I were Republic, if I were like a Republican in any way, which I'm not, I would be extremely pessimistic about any prospects for defeating, uh, Biden and yeah. or you know what they, they that. need a new they need a new enemy right they yeah need, and it's it, not going to be Joe and it's not going to be yeah. Hunter you know I'm just thinking what you made me think of is who was the last sentimental Democratic president before Biden well it was Kennedy right 
and and his well, death yeah, his death made it him the most sentimental figure yeah. like in American history. Yeah. And um and both both Catholics, very different background. I'm thinking what what yeah. you know what both what are other comparisons? But you know, who knows if Kennedy would have won re-election in '64 if he hadn't been well assassinated. No, I, I think I think Kennedy definitely Kennedy would have like trounced uh, Goldwater. Yeah, against Goldwater. Yeah. Uh, maybe if Nixon <laughs> ran again, yeah. we're getting into alternate history now. But um, it's inter- yeah, it's interesting that you know we had the um, the I, some ironic Democrats. Well, I mean, is what we call Jimmy Carter a sentimental? Yeah, figure. yeah. I mean, but but, but he, failed one. I but guess he was also like he was running as a healer after Watergate. You know. Yes, he was like, and, and he and was. Nixon was a gothic character. Nixon was a gothic character, but more saliently a cynical character. And although I, lately I've been watching these interviews with Nixon, where he just goes and talks about his childhood and his youth to this guy i think his name might be frank gannon they're just on youtube from the 1980s they're like a few years after the famous frost nixon ones and they're not very confrontational they're just like nixon riffing on his childhood and his college days and then like all throughout his career they're quite fascinating and he's very like uh eloquent and sophisticated and lucid in his self-presentation yeah i've heard it people say that nixon was was like the smartest president of the 20th century. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable, I, you know, I haven't, I don't, I don't, I, I've never really seriously considered that question, but the interviews are, uh, fascinating to, I put them on in the background while I'm working. Sometimes. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. We've got, we've gone on for a while. Maybe we should end I it think, there. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. All yeah. Right. So thanks so much for, uh, shooting, shooting the shit around on, on this stuff. It's been interesting, um, and I appreciate you taking the time. So, if people, so people can, we'll include links to the pieces we discussed. Um, and if people want to follow you on Twitter, can you say what your Twitter handle is? Uh, it's X Lorenzen X L O R E N T Z E N on Twitter, and um, I don't have anything. I have a lot of stuff I'm working on, but nothing for sure coming out. Uh, if I could plug one thing, um, I'm hosting an event for the launch of uh, the novelist and short story writer Brandon Taylor's book of short story writer book of short stories, Filthy Animals, with the Prairie Lights Bookstore on June 22nd. This will be an, uh, an online event. It's an online Zoom event. Yeah. So he he's really smart, and we we um, talk about all this stuff in the DMs quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> he is not he is not the author of um, no I'm I'm confusing with someone else. His name is called Real Life. Came out uh, last year or the year before. Okay, cool. And and we'll, we'll if there's a link that we can include um, on the blogging site. I, I, I haven't been sent one yet, but when I when I I, I just. We just decided to do this a day or two ago. So oh, okay, cool. Um, and people can follow me on Twitter, RACW, and you know, if you and sound off in the comments. Uh, who who do you think is a great American boomer novelist? Did we get it wrong? Did we get it right? You know, like, subscribe, rate, review, all those things. Um, okay, so Christian, thank you so much for for coming on, and thanks to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.
See you.